there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you want to learn how to build a career in foreign policy, whether it's by working in Congress, the U.S. State Department, or in a think tank, or even academia, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has worked in all those institutions, including serving as a speechwriter for former U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry over four years, where he was the lead author of more than 300 of Secretary Kerry's speeches. But before I introduce you to Dr. Andrew Imbry, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive look into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week, and it is so easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Dr. Andrew Imbry, a senior fellow at Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technology, also known as CSET. Andrew previously worked as a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he was also a senior advisor to visiting distinguished statesman Secretary John Kerry. Prior to Carnegie, Andrew served as a member of the policy planning staff at the State Department, where he was a speechwriter to Secretary Kerry. Before moving to the Department of State, Andrew served as a professional staff member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He currently teaches foreign policy speech writing and rhetoric to graduate and undergraduate students at Georgetown University. His new book, due out in the summer of 2020, is entitled Power on the Precipice, The Six Choices America Faces in a Turbulent World. And it's a roadmap for bolstering American leadership in an era of turbulence abroad and deepening polarization here at home. Dr. Embry, Andrew, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am caffeinated and delighted to be with you. Oh, wonderful. Well, it is such a delight to get to speak with you. And I want to let you and our listeners know and just give everyone apologies at the outset here. I am living in a construction zone. Yet again, there is another new home that's being built across the street from me. And so I just want to apologize for the banging and hammering and whatnot. That is the reason why. So anyway, without further ado, let us dive into our 10 espresso shots, which are focused very broadly on foreign policy. So Andrew, what entry-level jobs are available to young people who want to break into this field? The main thing that I would do when I think about an entry-level job is to cultivate a growth mindset, to think about what are the skills that you want to have one, two, even five years from now, and how can that entry-level job give you the skills you need to get there. So these aren't just jobs that are going to be there for, you know, a decade or more. I think a lot of people in our generation 
are going to have to adapt and be agile and change jobs quite a bit. And so you really want to think about how do I challenge myself? How do I grow? And what are the skills that I lack that I need to gain along the way? And the second piece, just before I get into a specific entry-level job, Mm -hmm. is mentorship. I can't tell you how important mentors have been in my life for identifying those entry-level opportunities, for giving me the encouragement and optimism that I could reach for them. So mentors have been a big part of my life. And I just share that with your listeners because it's really helped me get a foot in the door in a lot of places. For speechwriters, anyone who wants to sort of dive into this craft, there are so many jobs out there from members of Congress, many of whom now speak you know, almost every day and need a speechwriter to opportunities in the private sector at places like West Ring Writers or SKDK, to government, to the executive branch, where speechwriters are helping to execute our national security and foreign policy, our economic statecraft, to working at a local level for your mayor or for your governor, or even in philanthropies. There's so many opportunities in speechwriting, in part because clear communication is so important today. And so I think just seize the opportunity, join a campaign, offer your services as a writer, even in your current job. I think people would be surprised to find out how many jobs actually could have a speechwriter, but don't and take the initiative, see what the people you work with want to do and the story they want to tell. And you might be able to be part of that. Excellent. That is so fantastic. One note of clarification. Was it SKDK that you mentioned? What is that? This is a firm, actually a very good friend of mine works there because he used to be my boss at the State Department. He was the lead speechwriter. It's a communications firm. It's SKD Knickerbocker. And it's a place where you know all sorts of communication strategy and planning happens. And my friend, Steve Krupen, leads their speechwriting, media training and communications practice. Gotcha. Okay. That's very helpful. Thank you. So, Andrew, what is a useful hard skill and soft skill or skills that you look for in the young people that you hire? So I tend to look at these two categories or I try to as a seamless whole that they're in some ways they reinforce each other and they're so important. You need to cultivate both. So I'd highlight a few that I always look for. And the first, which I think is so important, but sometimes undervalued is kindness, treating people with respect. It's so important, not just for being a good colleague and a good citizen, but making sure that the environment you work in is fun and supportive to be part of. I think there's some reasons to be kind as well that are important for not just productivity, but actually sustaining a legacy. You know, when you try to inspire a team, people are going to be so much more responsive if you're treating them with dignity and respect. And if you're trying to implement an agenda in government, on the Hill, in a business, you're not always going to be in that job. And if you want to sustain your initiative and legacy, people have to feel a sense of ownership. They have to feel like they're part of it. And some of that involves you just treating them with respect, being present for them. You know, one of my favorite quotes is from Simone Veil. She's a French philosopher who said that attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. And I think just being present, giving people your attention is incredibly powerful. And in diplomacy, it's also a way that you can practice empathy because you can try to constantly put yourself in someone else's shoes. It's very important in foreign policy to avoid what's called mirror imaging, constantly assuming that another person sees the world or a problem the way you do. So kindness for me is a very important quality in any job that you go into. Another would be good communication. This is obvious, I think, from a former speechwriter, but it's really important because as a leader, whatever level you are, your goal is to try to share your purpose with a team, with a broader group. 
And it's really important to try to do that in a way that creates shared ownership, that inspires people, that's clear and concise, that creates teachable moments for people, and that kind of crafts a story around those moments that people can shape and be part of. So many good leaders know how to speak in very clear, simple prose. To be able to brief very succinctly and with conviction, to write well, is incredibly important for getting your ideas out to a broader group. So communication, good, clear, simple language is another very important skill. There are two that I'd highlight as well that often are kept separate, but I think they actually go together quite well, which is creativity and execution. A lot of times when you experience a setback in a job or a failure, it's often one of a failure of imagination where you haven't been able to test the boundaries of your own knowledge and push beyond them. But so much of doing well in a job is also about attention to detail, execution and proper implementation. And so I sort of see these two skills as how is the world as it is and what could it be? And the two really bring them together. So I think good creativity and attention to detail and execution is really important. And the last one I'd say is being a bridge builder and a connector, being someone who's comfortable with ambiguity and difference. So practically speaking, you know, I'd like to see a background of someone who comes from the sciences, but who studied Dante and Shakespeare and Milton and somebody who's a humanist who's taken a computer coding class or has looked into data science. Someone who can bridge different disciplines is very important. Oh, wonderful. That is just fantastic. And I especially love, Andrew, that you began on the soft skills and the importance of kindness and empathy, because my goodness, with what we're all going through right now today, and we're doing this interview the third week of March with the coronavirus rampant, I think the world needs an awful lot more empathy and kindness to get through this. I couldn't agree more. And in many ways, I can speak for myself, you feel a deeper sense of connection with so many people. You realize when you're kept separate from them, how much you need them, how much you rely on others, and how important it is to accept that you are dependent on others, that we're part of a community. And it makes you want to be there for people in any way you can, especially at a difficult moment like this. And I would even go one step further and say because the coronavirus can hit any one of us, and it doesn't matter how much money we have, how little money we have, it doesn't matter if we live at the top of a mountain or in the middle of a city, the truth is we are all equally vulnerable. That's very powerful. I think that it reminds me of a very sort of practical understanding of what dignity means. You know, in this, you know, we're all human, we're all fragile, we're all mutually vulnerable. And that means we all are mutually dependent on one another. And there's something sort of beautiful about that fragility. And I think it just reminds us again of what it means to be human and how precious the moments we have together are. A hundred percent. So speaking of being human, I know you studied the humanities. Is someone's major a deciding factor, Andrew, to get into this profession? In other words, if they haven't studied fill in the blank, is it a deal breaker? You know, the great thing about speech writing, I'll start there, is that you can come from any background. And, you know, I've worked with people who have been journalists, who've come from the sciences, who've been historians. It's really an open door in part because as a speechwriter, you have to write on almost any topic. At the State Department, there was the Kennedy Center Honors where we would write speeches as a team about America's greatest musicians and poets and jazz artists. You'd be writing on energy policy or negotiations with Iran or fisheries issues in Southeast Asia. So there 
there's no end to the kind of subjects you're going to tackle as a speechwriter. So any major really can help you. I think the key is you ought to follow something that you're passionate about because you're more likely to go deeper on it, to really learn it if you care a great deal about it. And then to just know that keeping a broad mindset and not specializing too early can actually give you a wealth of insights you can draw on later in your career. On foreign policy more generally, it does help to have a grounding in history, especially the history of other countries and the culture of other countries. So you can start to see issues from their point of view. And I think that's really important. And you can always specialize later on. And I think in some respects, after you get out of college or you know vocational school or wherever you go, the world is a great training ground and you can gain experience and specialization that way. But as a major, you know, I'd encourage people to go broad and to think about what they're most passionate about. Study that because you can use it in so many different ways for the rest of your life. Excellent. What about a graduate school degree and less so for those who are looking for an entry level position, or maybe it is important for those looking for an entry level position. But most importantly, Andrew, which kind are most useful to have? So graduate degrees are important. I think there's no way around it when you're looking at the kind of job market we're in and the opportunities that exist in foreign policy today. I would say graduate degrees combined with some job experience first are really important because that job experience helps you hone precisely what it is you want to actually go deep on. And let's just be honest, a lot of these degrees cost quite a bit of money and they take time from your life. So you want to make sure you're ready and you want to make sure that you know what you want to study. There are a lot of great programs in foreign policy at the master's level. I'm biased. I've been at Georgetown a long time, but they have a terrific school of foreign service with master degree programs. But there's a wealth of opportunities in the country from American universities, School of International Service, Fletcher, Columbia SEPA program, the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, Harvard Kennedy School. Maryland has great programs. So there's a lot of opportunities in foreign policy, but I'd encourage listeners to think about what your work experience teaches you and where do you want to go in the next five years? Do you need that grad degree to get there? It's not always automatic that you need it. For example, as a speechwriter, you don't necessarily need a grad degree. What it really helps to do is just ask yourself those questions about where you want to be in the next couple of years. What do people who do what you want to do? What's their educational trajectory look like? For me, I went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service. It was a wonderful international group of people. And I loved learning from folks who had been in the military and journalism, who had started their own nonprofits, who had worked in a bureaucracy. That's one of the most rewarding experiences about grad school. But I'd say again that I think it's really important to have some work experience first to really figure out where you want to go. Wonderful. What about life experiences? What, in your own experience as the child of an American diplomat, do you think are the most useful ones to have for someone starting out in this field? I love this question because I think it reminds me how important experience really is because it really informs your judgment. And three for me have been formative. One is just, as you say, that experience overseas, being able to see your own country from the perspective of another, to sort of gain that reversibility of perspectives, that empathy that we talked about earlier has been really important. You know, I grew up in Europe and I remember in the 90s when President Clinton led the effort to try to 
put an end to the bloodshed in the Balkans. And I got to see sort of the application of American power and purpose, but in later years, also the contradictions of American power and purpose. And so it was really a lesson for me. When I was in London as a young kid, when I first moved there, the IRA was still carrying out a bombing campaign in areas. I remember getting evacuated from museums in London because of bombing threats. And it reminded me that these issues, sectarian conflict, they can intrude on your daily life. And 9-11, of course, was a seminal moment in my life, as was the financial crisis. And I was in Brussels at the time. So this experience overseas really shaped my ability and my perspective on issues and my effort to try to see them from the perspective of other people in different countries. So that's one. The second is experience and failure. I'd say that it's often seen as something you want to hide or to put behind you, but failure is so important for cultivating resilience and realizing that when you feel like you've hit rock bottom, you're still there, you're still whole, and you've got people who are supporting you and you can come back. And I think that experience is something that teaches so much. And it's something that I actually, you know, going back to what you look for in people, I actually would look for someone who's resilient and has overcome failure when thinking about hiring someone. And the final experience I'd say is getting some working experience in your local community. You know, it's something I actually, I wish I've done more of because it reminds me that people just don't exist in the abstract. People exist in specific places with specific stories. And as a speechwriter, you're constantly thinking about what a policy looks like from the perspective of real people. And I think communities have been really resilient in the last couple of years doing some incredible things. And it just reminds me how important place is when you're trying to understand someone and their identity and how you can help make their lives better. I love everything that you've just said. I would say most especially, I love your focus on failure as being so important. And we're going to get into a time in your life when you've experienced failure in our main time for coffee interview and our listeners should check out show notes to see if Andrew's main time for coffee interview has already been released. You can see that in the show notes for this episode. But failure is really just another opportunity to learn. And I think it is just such an important experience. And truthfully, I think that we can all look at the experience that we're going through right now with the coronavirus as an opportunity to see what are those lessons that we are going to take away in terms of how we have adapted and cultivated and where did we fail in one way or another during this experience and just not to look at it as a scarlet letter but rather as a badge of honor. Andrea, I love that. I'd say also that I try to remind myself and sometimes not always successfully that if you fail at something, it doesn't mean you're a failure. And to try to separate whatever you're concerned about, the action, the decision, the omission from who you are as a person. And I think it sort of reminds you about how important humility is because we're all, you know, as we were saying before, we're all vulnerable. We all make mistakes. We all fail. And to try to learn from it, to see that actually in this failure, there's a lesson that I can use to grow from, to learn from. And hopefully you can share it with other people. Because going back to our conversation about mentorship, one of the wonderful things about a mentor is that they've failed a lot too. And they can share those thought patterns and intuitions with you to help you avoid that perhaps. And you can make your own original mistakes. And so I think it just ties together so much with what it means to be a good leader that whenever I see somebody in an application pile or someone interviewing who's really confronted that failure and is not afraid 
afraid to share it. I admire them so much. And I think it's just an important part of growth. A hundred percent, Andrew. So what is the best part for you, Andrew, of being in the world of foreign policy and foreign affairs? I think it's that, you know, I grew up the son of a foreign service officer. And I remember having those dinner table conversations with my family about these big world events and how at times when I was a kid, kind of how abstract they felt, but it was almost exciting. I felt that I was part of sort of adult conversation and I was trying to figure out, you know, who all these players were that my parents were talking about and imagining what my dad might be doing at the office, whether we were in Paris or London or other places. And to be able then later in my life to be a part of that larger story and conversation about American foreign policy where you feel that in a small way you are trying to make the world better. And I think one point I just emphasize is how many unsung heroes there are in the government trying to make American foreign policy you know, smarter, more inclusive, more effective every day. And there's so much idealism there, even as they're realist about the world as it is. And I think I felt very privileged to be a part of that in a small way to see how America's story intersects with the stories of countries around the world and to try to make a small difference, even something small as working on a speech and you're overseas in a country and you see the expression on the audience's faces when your boss articulates some of those words and you can tell that you've just you've reached somebody in a completely different culture going through a difficult moment I think is incredibly fulfilling and we're in a very turbulent moment in the world so it's an opportunity for the best talent of the next generation to really get out there and to make a difference wonderful so we both know Andrew that even in the best jobs, there are going to be aspects that are not so much fun. The way I put it is that suck. And so what would you say right now as a senior fellow at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology is the part of your current job that sucks the most? It's interesting because a question like that forces you to ask, where are my weaknesses and where are the opportunities where I know I might fail or I might not live up to what I want to do? Let me say two things. One about a past job and one about the current. One in the past is working on a speech for many hours and feeling like you've put your heart and soul into it. And it can get very personal because, you know, you're trying your best to channel someone else's voice, but you're sharing so many of your ideas and insights and then being told that you have to start over and write it again and that you didn't even come close. And doing that again and again under a high pressure situation with not a lot of food when you're traveling overseas, little sleep, it can feel demoralizing. And, you know, you have to be able to remind yourself that this is sort of the price of admission for being part of these big conversations to be in the room, so to speak, and have the chance to shape a very small part of the story that we're telling to the world. But that can be really tough when you write something with all your heart and you're told it's just not good enough or it's not really what the boss needs right now. In the current job, I would say in a way, the challenge for me, I'll put it this way, is that this is a stretch job for me in some ways. I come from a sort of foreign policy humanities background and the job that I'm in now at Georgetown brings together a wonderfully 
diverse group of people who all care about the intersection of artificial intelligence and national security. And a big part of the center's job is to bring data to bear in a nonpartisan way on these big public policy issues. What does the evidence tell us? And you know, I came up as someone who really focused on history, on humanistic studies, and I didn't study data science. I didn't study how to work sort of with these more quantitative methodologies. And so it's, I would say, far from something that I dislike. It's just a real challenge for me to stretch myself, to adopt a different mental model, and to try to see sort of how do these problems look when I wrestle with them from a sort of data analytics perspective. It's been actually a great learning experience for me, and it's something that I would encourage anybody to do is to run toward those challenges or jobs where you feel like you might not exactly have all the skills or that you think are really tough because it's going to widen your horizon. And fortunately, I've worked with some really wonderful patient people who have been teaching me a lot about all sorts of new techniques. So those are the two things in my life, I think, where I've been stretching myself the most on the speech writing side and on sort of the data analytics side. Great examples. Thank you so much. So, Andrew, it sounds like you've gotten over the years a lot of wonderful career advice. What would you say is the best career advice you've ever gotten? It's probably something my dad taught me right before I was going to the State Department. He had been there for more than three decades, and I was so proud to be following in his footsteps. And he told me that, listen, there's no end to what you can accomplish if you're willing to give somebody else the credit. And it sort of struck me as it made intuitive sense. You always want to do a good job and be recognized for it. But what it taught me above all was that in a way, you're just a temporary steward in whatever job you hold, especially when you're in government. And I had to remind myself to act with humility, to know that when you work hard on a speech or on a position paper, that you can't have your ego bound up with it so intimately that when someone criticizes your speech or your position paper, you take it personally or your ego falls flat. You have to put that aside and kind of infuse the sense of mission in yourself. I think that's really important. The other thing is if you want to get something done in the government, it can't be sort of a me only enterprise. It has to be about we, you have to create a sense of shared ownership. So some of that means, all right, well, how do I create a sense of ownership, share this idea with other people, watch it take off? The sign of success isn't, is my name on this memo? The sign of success is, did I help contribute ideas that are now sort of in the bloodstream and people are taking up on their own and leading with? And that's in a, ultimately a much more fulfilling experience, but it does require you to sort of put your ego aside. And as sort of my dad taught me to give other people the credit. That is such fabulous and advice. And frankly, I think it applies to just about any industry out there. I mean, certainly in the world of politics that you've been living and working in, but also in the corporate world, in the nonprofit world, if you are willing to put your own ego aside and give credit elsewhere, even if you're the one who deserves the credit, you will find it comes back to you in spades and in goodwill, which will help you achieve whatever your longer term objectives are in terms of the kind of impact that you want to make with your life. 
Absolutely. And I, I'm glad you used the word goodwill because one of the tasks of a speechwriter, you start a speech and you think, all right, how do I build trust with this audience? How do I establish goodwill? And this is one of the cases where I think speechwriting is just, you know, really interesting for philosophy of life. And when you're thinking about how to build goodwill, you're automatically inspired to say, okay, well, who are the heroes in this community? What does this audience feel right now? What do I want them to feel after? And again, how do I make this about us, not about me? How do you write a speech show, it creates a bonding effect. It creates a sense of community among the audience and the many audiences who aren't there in the room, but who are still listening. And so to me, this advice that my dad gave me, yeah, you're right, applies not just in foreign policy or speech writing. I think it applies to any environment where a group of people are trying to work together to achieve a goal that's bigger than themselves. Fantastic. So I've got two final espresso shots, Andrew. What movies, if any, or Netflix, Hulu, Amazon shows, which I'm guessing our listeners have been binging on over the last number of months, or books for that matter, do you think accurately depict your profession? I would say the canonical example is West Wing, the TV show. I mean, it inspired me. I think it's inspired a generation of people to enter into public service. It has a wonderful sort of spotlight. It shines a spotlight on speechwriters. And anybody who hasn't seen it, I'd really encourage them to watch it. And I think many of your listeners who have already seen it will know what I'm talking about. There's so many scenes to pick from, but there's a wonderful scene in West Wing where President Bartlett is going to go speak to, I believe it's an association of trout fishermen. And the speechwriters who are working on the speech are supremely confident that the weather is going to be sunny. And they have a line in the speech about that, about looking out over a beautiful vista. And then another colleague says, you know, are you sure about this? And they'll say, yep, you know, I checked it with the Coast Guard and everything's good to go. And then you see the scene where the speechwriters are following the president into this sort of august space. And of course, just as the president's about to speak, it starts to storm and rain. And you realize they forgot to change the line in the speech. There's so many times as a speechwriter where these little details matter a lot and you need to be the one thinking about them. But it also reminded me that there's so many issues and so much information coming at these senior decision makers and you're just sort of one piece of that puzzle. So how do you capture your boss's attention, make them realize why this is important? How do you tell a compelling story to whatever group you're speaking to and still keep an eye on the weather? So it's a really fun episode, but the series is great. Very briefly, I'd say a book that actually might be slightly off the beaten path for a foreign policy analyst or speechwriter or someone in AI is a book called Einstein's Dreams by Alan Lightman. And it's just a wonderful short series of vignettes about how Einstein imagined time. And I think it gets back to questions we talked about earlier, which is, I think a lot of good work in foreign policy is about seeing the world as it is and having sort of an unvarnished view about the tough realities of politics and of foreign policy, but also keeping an eye on the world as it might be and not losing sight of that and trying your very best to bring the two together, even though you'll probably always fall short. And so to me, this book kind of is a, in a way, a testament to the imagination and to what we could eventually achieve and what might be. So those two things I'd share with people. Wonderful. We will include links to both in our show notes. Final espresso shot, Andrew. What would Java junkies be surprised to learn about your profession? I'd say they would be surprised how fun it is 
to work in a team of writers. I originally thought of speech writing kind of as a lone task where you're the kind of writer holed up in a room and you're you're working away at all hours of the night. It's sort of a solitary affair. But one of the wonderful things about being at the State Department was that I wrote with a team of incredible writers who you need that support when you go through jobs like this, both because of the high pressure, but also because of the creativity. And if any of your listeners are interested in writing, I'd really encourage them to seek out jobs where you could be part of a team of writers and communicators, because there's nothing better than sort of having a whiteboarding session with a group of people who share your love of the craft and who can help you tell those stories even better. The second thing I'd say is there's an anecdote that I remember reading about Peggy Noonan, who was President Reagan's speechwriter and a sort of wonderfully talented speechwriter. And I remember reading about how she would say people could come and give her the policy guidance and say, okay, you know, here's what you need to know. Now you can go dance with the words. And she'd quote back to them, W.B. Yeats's line, the dancer is the dance. And I think one thing that people might be surprised about is how much policy gets made in a speech and that it's not just words. What you're doing is you're taking a policy and you're conveying a story and emotion around it and a tone. And in diplomacy, tone matters so much. And even one word can change a policy. And so as a speechwriter, you bear a tremendous amount of responsibility for the conduct of foreign policy. And I think people might not always realize that it's not just about the high flights of rhetoric. It's also about the serious sort of sober realities of very sensitive negotiations. Wonderful. Andrew's new book is entitled Power on the Precipice, The Six Choices America Faces in a Turbulent World. It's been published by Yale Press and is due out in the summer of 2020, but you can pre-order it now and we've got a link in show notes. Andrew, I want to thank you so much for your spirit, for your generosity, and for your kindness in joining me and the Time for Coffee community today. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was really wonderful talking with you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.